What's up? This is Founders Talk. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief here at Changelog. On this show, I share one-on-one conversations I have with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, their lessons learned, and what it takes to build and to run their business. For my new listeners, thank you for tuning in. Head to founderstalk.fm for all the ways to subscribe. For my long-time listeners, hey, thanks for coming back. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening. If you haven't yet, check out Changelog Plus Plus. That is our membership. It's for diehard listeners who want to directly support us. They want to drop the ads, and they want to get a little closer to the meta with bonus content and more. On today's show, Connor Sears is joining me, founder and CEO of Rewatch. What began inside of GitHub to help them thrive and connect is now available to every product team on the planet. Rewatch lets teams save, manage, and search all their video content so they can collaborate async and with greater flexibility. Connor and I talk about the tool's inspiration. Spoiler alert, inside GitHub, it was called GitHub TV, which you're here during the show. Talk about how teams leverage video to reduce the constraints of communication, how Connor and his co-founder knew they had product fit, and how they grew the team and the product. And of course, the flip side of that, we cover some of Connor's failures along the way and knowing when it's the right time to take a big swing. Big thanks to our friends and our partners Fastly for making our podcast, our assets, our site, our everything fast globally. That's because Fastly is fast globally. Learn more at Fastly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at WorkOS. When it comes to adding enterprise-ready features or selling to enterprise customers, product teams, engineering departments, developers, they're all faced with a choice to ignore and focus on viable features or get distracted and learn how to integrate with complex legacy systems. And I'm here with Michael Greenwich, the founder and CEO of WorkOS, who knows there's a better way. Michael, what do teams at Vercel or PlanetScale know about the world of enterprise features that no one else knows? The world of enterprise features is full of acronyms. Typically, they're like these three or four letter acronyms like SAML, or skim or seam it's like secure event information event management there are these long kind of like really obscure acronyms that most developers aren't familiar with they've never really heard of and this is what IT admins require you to build integrations around they say hey we need saml or we have to have a skim integration etc and for companies like you know planet scale or Vercel that are building on really modern stacks building with react and like you know cutting edge javascript technology and like web applications they're really having to go integrate with these old legacy platforms and systems like SAMLs built around like XML several generations before. And so I think when those companies looked at what to do in this scenario, they have deals that are getting blocked because they don't have something like SAML, single sign-on. And their engineering team is like, do we really want to spend all the time to go read the spec and learn how this works and dive into all the different ways this can break? And in the case of SAML, there's a bunch of instances of security vulnerabilities that have happened over the years. Do they really want to spend time on that? Or, or do they want to spend time building you know, the unique features that power for sell, you know, like focusing on Next.js and focusing on those applications. And for these companies, they they don't. They don't want to spend the time thinking about SAML. They want to be able to hand it off to someone who can really go deep in that and obsess over it. And so we're sort of like, you know, the, the, the partners to all these companies that goes really, really deep around, you know, these acronyms or obscure technologies, making sure they don't just work really well, but they work everywhere with every single system. And we've tested it end to end. And it even has this kind of compounding effect. The more people using WorkOS, Kind of the more stable and more robust it becomes. And what it really does is lets companies like Vercel or PlanetScale or Hopin or Webflow focus on those product features and for their best engineers to spend time still delighting their customers and not 
necessarily doing these uh, enterprise IT integrations. That's awesome. Thank you, Michael. So even if your team isn't focused on enterprise, you can still leverage WorkOS so you're not turning enterprise away. Learn more. Get started at WorkOS.com. They have a simple pay-as-you-grow pricing plan that scales with your usage and needs. No credit card is required. Again, WorkOS.com. Welcome to Founders Talk. It's been a bit. I've been using Rewatch actually, and uh, I gotta say, I'm I'm excited for what you know product teams can actually use. I like this is something I've wanted to have, and you know I haven't always been here at Changelog doing what I do, and you know I've been on bigger teams that have had more people than just a few. So we have a very small team here. We we keep lean for those reasons and for good reasons, but we are expanding, and so we have more of a need for Rewatch. But I've been on product teams before as a product manager, as an individual contributor, and I've wanted to be able to like skip the meetings and just show up later and still get the same content and maybe even add some comments and stuff. I'm kind of describing your product basically, but I'm a fan of Rewatch. I'm a fan of you. So welcome to Founders Talk. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We kind of have similar roots to some degree. Like we began one year after GitHub. You worked at GitHub. That's right. So there's the tie. We've been doing our shows for 13-ish years started in 2009, and a lot of what you've done today with Rewatch really began inside of GitHub. Can you tell me kind of like you know, how you got to Rewatch, how you got to GitHub? What's your story? How'd you get here? Yeah, totally. Uh, GitHub you know, is one of those special companies where a lot of great work was done, and I feel like we're starting to see a lot of great work come out of GitHub, uh, whether it be in the form of more open source or uh, through companies like Rewatch. So Really, you know, I, I joined GitHub midway through that story, right? When they joined or they started the company, you know, like you said, around 2008, 2009. What was really inspiring about that is like looking back, they were, they had a ton of foresight into how they wanted to run the company. And they knew they, you know, from day one, they were going to be remote friendly. And they had a culture of sharing uh, tech demos, sharing information, getting up on stage at conferences. I mean, GitHub has a long history of their engineers getting up on stage and sharing how we work at GitHub. And that translated internally as well, whether it be all hands or, or you know, lightning talks, tech demos. Uh, and they needed a way to share that because when they were hiring remote, they didn't do it like we do it today, where it's like, okay, we're going to decide on a time zone or or within a few hours and make sure everybody has somebody to work with. No, I was managing people that were in London, uh, that were in Japan, uh, Australia, and nobody. some of those people weren't working with anybody uh, that overlapped with them. And so... You know, I think the the founders of GitHub saw that and and wanted to start building solutions to sort of uh, work that way, um, and that meant video. Uh, that was the first place they went. And they built a really rudimentary tool. Um, they called it GitHubber TV. Oh wow! Yeah, so we always referred to ourselves as GitHubbers. I think they still do. <laughs> it's not like the company's gone anywhere. Yeah, lovingly too. Yeah, and so. Uh, it was nothing more than a website that had a video player on it. And it was really basic. And that's sometimes where the best ideas start is as basic as possible and the most value. Very simple. Yeah. And so that tool became load bearing. By the time I joined, it was 2000, end of 2012, 2013-ish, the beginning of it. A lot had happened at the company by then. And so when I joined, I was able to you know benefit from that tool that they 
put up. And I was able to go watch the all hands where, you know, what was it like when they first raised that giant round from Andreessen that was so such a big deal? Like, what was the culture like? What was it like being in that room? Well, I got to experience it. So the beginnings of rewatch were just experiencing the power of a tool like that. And I think, you know, it's funny. Everybody always wanted to know how, how we work at GitHub, but for some reason, we always talked about our internal YouTube is what we called it. GitHub or TV, you have this internal YouTube. People just fascinated by it. I think your reaction to this sort of tool is similar to what we we heard when we talked to people. And um, their excitement and the same refrain over and over again of, I wish I had that at my company. That would be cool. And then flash forward, you know, 2020, beginning of 2020, before the world ended, you know, my co-founder and I, Scott, also a former GitHubber, we were kicking around our ideas for what we wanted to do next. And we had just been talking about like, it seems like, you know, there were some legacy tools out there, certainly giant enterprise tools that had sort of started to do that because I I think traditionally only big enterprises really felt the need to have a tool around their video. But as we were looking at it, we saw the power at smaller teams uh, and GitHub had grown quite a bit by that point. It's pretty large today, but at the time it was only a few hundred people. And we saw how much value we got. So that's where we started uh, is building a better version of that experience that we had. And I think for us, we, we knew there were some obvious things that we wanted to do. We had st- the internal tool had started to add in uh, transcription for like a subset of videos, like the big all hands that seemed really important. They would go and get a transcription and upload that. It's all very manual. We kind of wanted to see if we could just transcribe everything by default and not make people think about that. The big benefit from that is that all of a sudden all those videos were searchable for the first time. And uh, we could search within the transcripts as well as the title of the video and just really make a really powerful um, you know, search experience around your video. So mm. that was you know similarly to that original tool starting off as basic as possible. That's exactly where we started. It's like, can we make a better version of that? Um, you know, 10 years afterwards, uh, that had transcription by default, had basic organizational features and had really powerful search. Um, and you know, we were just answering the question for ourselves is, is this, is this sellable? Will somebody want to pay us for this? I think that's (laughs) sort of where we started. Wow. Okay. Tell me then, I guess with GitHub TV or was it GitHub or TV or GitHub TV? Did it end up becoming GitHub TV? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I don't know what they call okay. it today. I think they call well, they're a customer now, so I guess I'm jumping ahead, but the, now that we've replaced that old tool, I think they do just call it GitHub TV. Okay. I just want to make sure I'm on the lexicon that you have. <laughs> sure. Uh, and I'm using the nomenclature, the nomenclature that you are using. So with this tool, then I guess, you know, being a developer led product type company that GitHub has been, was it, what, did you just upload a video? Was there like ways that you had to record? Was there like do's and don'ts or was it just sort of like, oh, you know, figure it out, upload to S3, it arrives. How does it, how did it work? Like, was it kludgy or was it kind of sophisticated? Oh, it wasn't sophisticated at all. In fact, that's why we saw as an opportunity, right? We knew the ins and outs of what an internal tool that's not maintained over the years, what it turns into. Oh yeah. And so And I think that's sort of our thinking is like, you know, constantly companies are going through and engineers, especially we do this ourselves. 
you know, standing up a new company and, and trying to solve a problem. And there's a tool out there we can buy. And of course, the first thing we always say is like, we could probably build this, right? We could, we could build a little tool there. Of course. Yeah. And the answer is yes, of course you can. Yeah. That's simple. That's simple, Connor. <laughs> Normally, you know, should use the question. And I think what everybody over or underestimates is the cost of maintaining that and keeping it performant, keeping it working. I mean, I think by the time we were in talks to actually replace the tool, and by the way, like I love this story because you know we did start writing the the first line of code around this. Um, I believe it was March of 2020, right before the stock market crash, right before COVID lockdown started, and you know by June we were in like pretty close talks with. Uh, GitHub as a customer and everybody assumes like, well, you know, everybody at GitHub. And I always remind those like, so it must've been easy, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're Microsoft now. Like that's not like my buddies over there. They're all gone. (laughs) It's different. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's very different to sell into a Microsoft company than it is to sell into essentially a startup. So, you know, what they're looking at their internal tools, they're seeing it as a risk. I'm sure it had the pin bot uh, warnings all over it on the on the repo. I don't think they had an uploader that worked anymore. I think that had broken a while back, and so it did take some access to the S3 bucket. Anyways, I don't I, you know I don't know the specifics. I just know that they were looking to move off, and we had caught. It wasn't a product, basically. It was it was a tool internally that had value that was exactly that needed. I guess potentially a product team to either focus on GitHub GitHub, yeah, or focus on an internal tool which probably had diminishing returns if they could just you know pay you. I don't even know, maybe a grand or two a year to have an internal. I don't even, I'm just speculating. I have no sure. idea. It's not, it's not 50 bucks a month. That's for sure. It's, it's no. a lot more than that. Cause you got per user costs, right? You got bandwidth costs, you got video files, transcription, traffic, commenting, a lot of fun things that happen. Yeah. That's where the company actually started. It didn't start in, you know, cutting a repo and uh, right. cutting a branch and going, it started in a spreadsheet. Can, can this make money or is it too cost ineffective to, to be a business? Cause you're, you got transcription costs, you've got wow. storage, which is not that big of a deal anymore, but you also have streaming bandwidth and how do you measure that? And are you going to be a metering company or are you going to try to simplify it um, mm-hmm. based on how people expect to pay for these tools? So yeah, it's fun. It's a good problem to tackle up front. So you see the, you see the problem, right? It's March just before the pandemic hits June, you sell, but let's kind of rewind those few months there. So you see the problem, you see the the need to put it in place. At what point did you say, okay, this should be a company. We should raise funding. We can actually make money from this. Because it's one thing to have a side project. I mean, because this could have just been an open source tool that you just put out there and everybody stands up their own. It could be a Docker image with your own, you know, secure, you know, object storage attachment to it to deal with all the files. I mean, it's just video, right? So the storage is pretty mostly simple to deal with for the most part. I'm going to say in quotes, simple storage is always simple. Oh, I think that's fair. Yeah. So how did you figure out, okay, this should be a business? It's a great question. Cause I think, you know, it's never a point in time really. Well, maybe sometimes it is, I guess there are points in time where um, there's a before and after sort of situation for us, you know, again, that transition from thinking about it as a project to more of a business started really early. When we were looking at the opportunity, it wasn't just GitHub and this cool internal tool that we saw, although that was the experience that we had uh, had the closest um, or that we were closest with. But we started talking to people at a lot of other companies, large companies like Facebook, which I had done a little stint at uh, in between GitHub and uh, Rewatch. 
And you know, lo and behold, they they also had built their own internal tool. And you know, they also had a fun name for it. And then you talk to people from Amazon. And Amazon has a tool for it. Then you look at Bridgewater uh, and Ray Dalio, and he's written a, basically a book about how they set up their internal tooling around recording every meeting and, and radical transparency. And then I started getting DMs from companies that should not be telling me that they have an internal tools, uh, or excuse me, an internal tool for how they make movies, for instance, uh, <laughs> that are supposed to be secret. And it just became a pattern that we saw. And I think the opportunity became clearer and clearer that it's bigger than than just a side project. But, you know, I think the moment it became real was uh, Scott Goldman, who I started the company with. We had been texting over iMessage for, I don't know, maybe six months. And he's a really close friend, but because of the pandemic and because like I, I lived in the East Bay of the, the Bay Area, he lived in San Francisco. I just stopped seeing him face to face for a while. And so all we did was text each other about this, these ideas and the pros and cons of starting a business. And then I quit my job and I realized it's been a year and a half since I've even spoken to this person in any sort of real-time format. And I was like, hey, we're going to do this, right? We're going to build a company because I just quit and I just realized we haven't really talked in person yet. <laughs> and it was just over these iMessage uh, wow. uh, chats. And he just, I think he was like, well, I guess so. Like, I guess we are doing it. So that's one moment I can think of where, you know, we wanted to give ourselves six to eight months to prove out a business. And our original plan was to bootstrap, just do it ourselves. And, and that's why we gave a time limit on it. And, you know, that was a whole direction that we thought we were going to go. And you know, certainly three months later, we had our first deal, which I would say is, was an enterprise sale, which was different than we what we expected. Normally when you start a company and SaaS, it's a bottoms up motion and you're, you're trying to land and expand and get like a small team using it in a variety of different places. And then hopefully it ex expands out throughout that uh, company. And by the way, that's an awesome plan. <laughs> like that, not saying that's a bad plan, but we, you know, that first deal was for all of GitHub, every, everybody in the company. And I think that sort of go to market really became clearer as we started adding our next logos, whether it be companies like Brex in the you know more financial side of things, as well as companies like PlanetScale, who you've had on the show. Um, Sam, yeah. So variety of different sizes there, but the thing that was unique was this was a top-down sort of sale. Uh, we could get everybody onboarded at once. And I think the value just becomes more and more valuable uh, when you have everybody on there because it's all about accessibility to this content. It's all about you know everybody being able to contribute, et cetera, et cetera. So I think once the opportunity became clear, there was that decision of like, is this a bootstrap thing that we're just going to do on the side or do we want to take a bigger swing at it? And honestly, that, that question wasn't like, yes, let's go raise money. Uh, it was... Hey, let's tiptoe. Let's talk to some people that we had worked with before. Let's just get a feeling for it. Let's show them like our pipeline, which honestly, a lot of times we're like, you know, is this good? You know, kind of questions like, could you just be raw with me for a second? Like if this, if you think this is a bad idea, just tell me, cause that would make things easier. In terms of like product roadmap pipeline, or you mean like deal pipeline? Like deal pipeline. Like here are okay. companies that have reached out to us uh, since we tweeted once or something. This is early on. And we had some really trusted people that were VCs that I told them like, hey, we're not necessarily looking to, to raise, but it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on it. 
And what was interesting, of course, is as things with VCs sometimes happen, is things start moving faster than you realize. Uh, and so yeah. when we started getting a lot of interest from the people that we trusted in, in the VC world, you know, we had to take a beat and really decide, all right, is this the path we want to go? What are the pros and cons? And ultimately, we obviously decided to raise a seed round in uh, the end of 2020. I think it was October. And we found some really great partners with uh, Semel Shah over at Haystack, um, as well as participation from a lot of angels. But um, the other major investor was Kent Goldman over at Upside Partnership. And those were two people. Uh, Kent, in particular, had actually invested in us uh, once before because we actually started a startup before this. <laughs> I've actually started two companies uh, okay. since uh, GitHub, but the first one, as with most startups, uh, didn't work out. And that's okay. Yeah, um, you learn some things, man. You learn a lot. <laughs> and you make connections. And you make connections. But I mean, it's it's an, it's cool to find people that are willing to take a risk on you twice. And knowing that you... And, Maybe that's where some of the trepidation came from. Is like, hey, do you still like me? Right. I know I kind of had to return capital there early on, but is this something you'd be willing to do again? And, you know, I mean, to Kent's credit, he was in from day one. He's the first uh, first money in to, to rewatch. And so, wow. yeah, I think that helped. I think that, that confidence and, um, you know, you need people around you that sort of help you out. <laughs> so mm -hmm. early on, that's, that's sort of what the process that we want is just tiptoeing into it and exploring the options and, and seeing what it was going to take to sort of build out this sort of business and, you know, the pros of being able to accelerate things. And, I, and frankly, like having cash to spend on go to market is really, really important and it's really helpful. Uh, otherwise yeah. it's really tough to do a bootstrapped top down sort of enterprise sale uh, sort of motion. And uh, ultimately, that's why we decided to go the way we did, especially as we like headed down into uh, the next round of funding, which we raised our seed uh, in 2020 uh, in October. And by February, March of 2021, we were looking at raising from um, Andreessen Horowitz. Um, and so, you know, that additional capital and that additional sort of focus around the opportunity uh, was really great for us. Yeah. It's interesting that um, your first deal was an enterprise deal and your first deal was a Microsoft enterprise deal. I mean, it was GitHub, sure, mm -hmm. but it's Microsoft. It's really the owners of GitHub. So it's it's GitHub, but really it's Microsoft. And I, I'd imagine there's like all this stuff you got to do to become, you know, a vendor, right? And compliant and there's security concerns. Like, did you deal with those things early on? And that's what enabled Brax and the other... Because like you said, you kind of went enterprise first versus top, you know, bottom up, which is, you know, individual contributor or individual users or kind of self-serve is, is sometimes how SaaS companies will launch is self-serve, come try it. And then eventually you scale from one team to many teams in an organization. You kind of started from org, all the teams, and then just kind of conquered from there. Yeah. How, how did the, what was it like to have to start at the enterprise level from a, I guess, business and a technical perspective? Was it a challenge to have to do that up front or is it actually a blessing in disguise? Both. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough, my background is in design and product, right? Um, my co-founder is the perfect augment to that and that he's, his uh, background is obviously in engineering and infrastructure and had built enterprise-ready software before. So 
just because you build it with compliance in mind doesn't mean you actually have compliance in terms of like the bureaucracy of having the the document that says you're compliant, of course. But that was something that as soon as we started, again, talking to GitHub, that was me selling Rewatch before we had anything in production. That was before we really had any tool made. I had sketches in a notebook. That's all it was. So mm-hmm. on one hand, it was a challenge because we had nothing. <laughs> we had an idea and a really cliche. We were selling vaporware, basically. Uh, yeah. and Potential vaporware, let's say. Let's say potential vaporware. Potential vaporware. And I sh- can scroll back. I should actually start archiving some of these iMessages. Uh, most of our company early days was run through iMessage, in case you can't tell. But Scott uh, was definitely texting me and saying, maybe we don't sell to Microsoft before we have anything even in production. Like I don't even have the AWS infrastructure set up. Like I don't have anything like, and actually I think this was a learning from that first startup that, you know, didn't work out is that one of the things that, you know, we learned was you got to sell this thing early and you gotta, you have to get that feedback from the market. And as soon as we had a clear enough idea with sort of pain points that we knew we wanted to, to hit on and solve, we could start to talk about the shape of the product in such a way that was uh, something people could get excited about. Now, I'm able to, as a designer, visualize ideas and express ideas that feel more real than they actually are oftentimes, which can be a dangerous thing. But it's also a really powerful tool as a designer uh, is that you can make things feel, oh, well, you, they've already figured everything out. Like, look at this thing. It looks great in the screenshot. Wow. And I think that was definitely a first step in, Right. As we started building it, and yes, of course, we built you know a product for them. We we didn't sell vaporware, of course, but um, as we got the production environment set up enough so they could actually use it, and we could you know help them migrate videos over. Yeah, there's this whole sticky thing of like becoming a Microsoft vendor, and if you've you know the terms change every year, but I think it was really important for us to have a security posture um, and to really start having a lot of discussions about this and plans for how we were going to be compliant. I think a lot of people don't realize, and this is why like typical SaaS companies, they stay away from this as long as possible. Uh, They don't want to talk to security teams. They don't want to do security questionnaires. They don't want to have to answer the question of, are you SOC 2 compliant? But we took the, the tact of, okay, let's, let's see what happens. Cause like, okay, if this deal falls apart, how much are we going to learn about the gap? What is the daylight between what we have and what we're going to need? And I think people would be surprised that if you're just willing to get in there and have those messy discussions and just, you know, it's okay if the deal didn't happen, at least trying to do an enterprise sale a couple of times, you know, mm-hmm. a year, even if you are bottoms up, I think it's really helpful for companies. It helps you focus and, and see potentially an opportunity. Because otherwise, you just assume it's so far away and so hard, and that's something you'll do later when you hire a sales team and you have a giant, you know, go-to-market team. And I think um, I think founders would be surprised that, you know, there there's a lot of stuff you can do to get what is it called the enterprise chasm to to sort of get across that. I'm stealing that from Work OS. Uh, I think that's yeah, I was gonna say yeah, yeah. Uh, I like Michael's uh, way of describing that, and that's really what it is. It, you know, what is the daylight between this stuff, and how can you close that gap? Uh, I'm kind of glad you mentioned WorkOS because, you know, I, I can't imagine, I'm not sure if you use them. I'm curious if they were played a role in your stack at all, but uh, you're shaking your head no. No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, we, we're, we're not. Uh, we're not using WorkOS. Uh, I did talk to them early on. And again, this is 
sort of credit to Scott. He he had already built our single sign-on. Uh, we already kind of had a bunch of that already built. So at the end of the day, we didn't really use them. Gotcha. But for some teams who have the fear of enterprise from a technical perspective, not just a deal perspective, will sometimes push away because they want to focus on product. And by no means is this an ad for WorkOS because they, they are a partner of ours and sponsor of ours. Mm. And so I'm kind of familiar with the process. That's what gets me excited about them because, and even your story, because you focus on enterprise early. And I think it's a lesson, not so much that, oh, hey, go buy WorkOS, but more like, you know what, don't shy away from these these enterprise deals because like you had said, you learned so much about the process. And I bet you that the non-enterprise deals get so much easier because you've gained so much confidence and it gave you a roadmap. And I'm sure when you went and you said, hey, venture capitalists, we're not really interested, but can you give us some feedback? It, it gave you, for lack of a better term, some ammunition when talking to them, some leverage, mm-hmm. because you kind of already had some of the hardest parts about that enterprise chasm that Michael did coin down you know like it's that's a lot yeah and and a venture venture capitalist will look at that and say okay you've already kind of stepped to the line of the enterprise chasm and it's easy for you to cross and in many ways scott had already built the tooling so hey let's just do it kind of thing like it it gave you so much confidence and awareness of the product direction and ability when it came to bringing in investors to make your company possible Yeah, I think that's accurate. You know, in hindsight, it's very easy to say, like, as if it was very planned out. But I think looking back, the things that worked really well for us is, you know, going back to that first seed round, we raised uh, two million. So, you know, our first money out, the first check we wrote was to start a process of uh, getting SOC 2 compliant. Um, And so, we knew by then that uh, this was a path we wanted to go and it's a differentiator, right? The more you can do this, the faster you can do it, uh, the earlier you can do it, uh, the better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially if you know that these are the type of customers you want to go after. And we kind of had our view of, you know, we really want 250 full-time employee plus companies really feeling comfortable with using rewatch. Um, Because, you know, we had just gone through this pandemic thing and everybody was going remote and hybrid and all that stuff was happening. But the idea of transcribing all your meetings was, was, and is still kind of scary for a lot of people. And so being able to have a security posture from, you know, a deal standpoint, a tech stack standpoint, but also a product differentiation standpoint was really important to us. Mm. Uh, It's something that we um, really pride ourselves in and, not only that, it it is sort of like a, it is a differentiation from the standpoint of a product for us. Yeah. I told you in the pre-call that uh, the killer feature for me is obviously the, the feature itself, but the real killer feature for me is just like that automatic transcription. And it's really, really good. Like I was, I was surprised at how good it is. And then more importantly, you were able to not only get the video transcribed, but you could jump to that spot in the video and, you know, the obvious next feature that comes from that is being able to search. So you can search, uh, you know, obviously by terms and phrases and stuff like that. You know, in tech or especially product teams, you have a lot of acronyms. You could be SRE. It could be SOC2. You know, it could, it could be anything really. And being able to find that within a video, to me, it, it's one thing to have a GitHub TV or a Changelog TV or something like that that's internal and have it as to kind of anti-Zoom fatigue yourself and your team to kind of cancel meetings and stuff like that. But it's a different thing when you can actually have that as now as like a search term database, key phrase database of how your teams move and operate. And like it had said, 
when you worked at GitHub, you were able to go back in time to that initial $100 million investment, which shook the world initially when GitHub got that. So you can kind of like rewind a bit from 2013 back to, I don't know what, I don't even know what the year was when they did maybe 2011 or something like that. I don't know. Some, some number, yeah, 2010, like 2011. That. I wasn't there. <laughs> but that was a big deal, you know, and as a designer or somebody in the design front for GitHub, it's probably pretty important for you to like go back and kind of, you know, kind of almost be there to some degree because you can go and rewatch these things. What a, what an awesome brand name too. Thank you. Yeah. Gosh, how did you come up with that? How did that come about? Oh man. How does anything come about? It was going to hover.com and searching all the type of uh, domains that were available. I think the original name we had for it was layback, like, uh, like a play on work, <laughs> play on words from playback. It wasn't good. We decided pretty early we needed something else. So yeah. Uh, we couldn't believe we found rewatch. I think dot TV is what we landed on to start with. And we since got the dot com, of course. But was that a challenge to get the dot com or was it uh, somewhat easy? You know, it's, I would say the, uh, the process of getting a dot com today is a very weird one. It's like, I feel like there can be a whole show about stories of people getting their dot com. Uh, if you want a pitch, there it is. Um, but mm-hmm. everybody's got a weird story. They all, they all know a person that just has their way of getting into it. I feel like uh, I've been introduced to the same guy. Like I know a guy type situation who can get you that domain and it always works out. It's wild. Now the price point might be too high or whatever, but it's a very interesting thing. But uh, yeah, we were lucky enough to get our.com, uh, you know, not too interesting of a story for us in this case, but um, gotcha. But yeah, we have changed all and that's, we always get compliments on having that domain and it's a similar story in that there's a story. We didn't know a guy, but I just looked and thankfully the person who did own it, didn't shy away from who is like they put their name on there and they happen to be on GitHub as a user and in tech and in software. So they kind of, and this is earlier days for us too. So we were less of a, we're actually less of a business than more of a hobby and have since turned into a really great business of course. But initially <laughs> I was like, Hey, we're doing this thing. I'd love to use the com. I'm cool with using like some sort of like domain broker. And they were like, that's cool. And like we named a price and I don't want to tell you the price, but it was, it was super cheap in comparison to what it could have, could have and should have been. If I bought it today, it'd probably be like unaffordable basically. But yeah, you know, several years ago when we we probably got it, maybe eight years ago, I want to say maybe, I don't even know what year it is anymore, but it's (laughs) it's 2022 barely for me, but I feel like time flies just so fast since the pandemic, but it was, uh, it was not, it was pretty long ago. We got the domain and yeah, I think there's always some sort of story to your .com and having changelog.com for us really, yeah. it really got uniquely better and different because we were the changelog.com before. And before that, we were changelogshow.com. It sort of legitimizes things when you actually have the .com as your core brand name. So I got to imagine that felt the same going from .tv to .com for you guys. Uh, 100%. Yeah. And you have to thread that needle, right? Because early on, you don't have enough money to spend on things like a domain. Not a lot of times. It's like not really the top priority. You you want to keep the lights on. It's it's like not that important. Yeah. yeah. But then, you know, you start talking to uh, people about a series A and now you're in this race against time because as soon as that announcement goes off, the price of whatever domain you want to buy goes through the roof because they know because yeah. ex- you see the press release. I know exactly how much money they have. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was our thing is like trying to come in under the wire and and make sure that we secured that dot com before 
um, somebody took advantage of the fact that they knew we might be uh, more willing to pay a higher premium. So, yeah. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sourcegraph. They recently launched a new feature called Code Insights. Now you can track what really matters to you and your team in your code base. Transform your code into a queryable database to create customizable visual dashboards in seconds. Here's how engineering teams are using Code Insights. They can track migrations, adoption, and deprecation across the code base. They can detect and track versions of languages or packages. They can ensure the removal of security vulnerabilities like Log4j. They can understand code by team, track code smells and health, and visualize configurations and services. Here's what the engineering manager at Prezi has to say about this new feature. Quote, as we've grown, so has a need to better track and communicate our progress and our goals across the engineering team and the broader company. With Code Insights, our data and migration tracking is accurate across our entire code base and our engineers and our managers can shift out of manual spreadsheets and spend more time working on code, end quote. The next step is to see how other teams are using this awesome feature. Head to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link will be in the show notes again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. guess deeper into your particular story so you got started two years ago with this we kind of paved some of the way for the direction you come from a design background you are a designer and scott is more software and engineering so you guys complement each other very well talk about something you shared in the the prep doc which was you wanted to own the problem and the solution end to end help me understand kind of what that means to to go from product maker product designer into a role where you sort of own all aspects as a discipline. Sure. So I think design is a really interesting profession, uh, especially software design, uh, product design, whatever you want to call it. I tend to think of myself as a software designer because that's what I design. Um, and the tools in which I use to design it are, are you know, code. Uh, I use tools like Figma and stuff like that too. But the point is, is that it's a pretty focused problem, you know, the best product designers are thinking about customers. They're thinking about the business. And, and these are all talking points you'll hear all of us always say is that, you know, I, I think it comes from this era where design was almost like, you know, window dressing. And we, we fought against that for, you know, so long. And of course, Apple helped popularize this idea that design is how it works and it's really important. And you had, I had all this conversation about, you know, earning your seat at the table, the business table and the, you know, and I, and by the way, we're there now. Like, I don't think anybody thinks that, uh, you know, it's not abnormal to see designer founders anymore. It's not abnormal to see designers and executive positions at companies. But, you know, when I was starting out, like, you know, all of us were just web designers uh, and we were just, you know, trying to take graphic design and bring it to the web. And that's, that's a different thing than, than starting a business, you know, and, and really solving a problem and developing a go-to-market strategy, uh, 
it takes a certain bit of skill and, and, and experience to line a product roadmap up with a go-to-market strategy. Um, those are very different skills than necessarily just looking at a user problem, solving, building a feature, you know, or even building a whole sort of pro- product around it. I think you know, becoming a founder and starting a company takes all of that to 11, and you really got to think through the whole problem. You have to be able to prioritize, and you know, perfect is really the enemy of good sometimes when you're building a so- software that you're trying to ship and, and sell. It's really difficult, and it, change, it, it really puts a lot of these uh, platitudes that I feel like as a designer, uh, we always talk about and puts it to the test and really, you know, sink or swim. Mm-hmm. And so I always love that even at the companies I I've worked with and I've had the, the blessing to be able to work at companies like Twitter and, and Facebook and, and, and some others as well as GitHub. And some of those like GitHub is much more of a tool, uh, versus a social network, of course, but even at Twitter and Facebook, in fact, especially at Facebook, my entire role was not working on the, the social network at all. It was uh, building design tools and, and managing a team that just exclusively built internal tools to support a design team. And at Twitter, way back in the day, you know, my best friend is Mark Otto, who built Bootstrap. And you know, a lot of all, and I wasn't involved with Bootstrap at all, I want to be clear about that, in so much as I was around. And we had these discussions about how to build internal tools to make ourselves uh, a little bit more effective. And that's where Bootstrap came from. And so I, we were always thinking about these tools internally in, in figuring out how who the customer was, what was the, the key piece of value that we were providing. And so all of that really sort of came together, I think, and, and this sort of grand plan that I was probably going to have to start a company one day because um, I, I'm always more drawn to the tooling internally to a company than the company itself. <laughs> you know, if I went to go work at Twitter today, I, I don't know what I would work on. Uh, I don't really want to work on the main uh, the main app at all. I'd be more interested in all the stuff that makes Twitter the company work. Okay. And so, yeah, that's sort of you know how I got into this mode of working on tools or building companies is really just being really interested in what makes these companies work well. Yeah, I really find it interesting that, um, you know, the inspiration came from within GitHub. Your first customer was GitHub and that it replaced the thing that you used and then you built an entire company around it. We haven't really fleshed out what exactly Rewatch is. So help me understand and help the listeners understand kind of what the feature set really is. What does Rewatch do? Of course, you're you've got large organizations, 250 people plus using it. But like, who is it designed for? And what are some of the feature sets of it? Yeah, so Rewatch is a internal video hub for for companies, uh, and so we allow you to securely share and organize and distribute and search all your video content. And that could be coming from short form sort of screen recordings, which we have a screen recorder for you if you're into that sort of things. Uh, it's from connecting up with your Zoom or Google Meet uh, meetings and recording those meetings for you and sort of automatically ingesting those into the uh, product. And so, as you mentioned earlier, transcribing all that video content and then making it searchable unlocks a lot of value for for teams. So the number one is creating video is extremely high bandwidth. Like, you know, you can talk somebody's ear off, you can record all day long, but actually consuming that content and getting the knowledge or the value as a, as a coworker, for instance, out of that video is extremely low bandwidth. Like that's not an effective way of 
uh, doing work is sitting around watching video all day. And that's coming from a, a, comp- a CEO of a company that, that builds a video tool. <laughs> I mean, what are you saying here? Yeah. Yeah. So I would much rather, I mean, the, uh, the surface level, the, the basic thing is, you know, being able to watch at two X is good, but I like to say reading the transcript at 10 X is way better. Yeah. Cause you can read fast and you can watch for sure. Yeah. hundred percent. But if you can find the exact thing you're looking for in an hour long, all hands, that's the two minute section that was actually valuable to you. And then you can move on with your day. Well, that's, that's golden. And so that's what rewatch is trying to do. We're trying, you know, rewatch is, is helping you get a hold of all this video in one place makes it secure. And so, you know, oftentimes when we talk to folks, we like to ask them like how many video links are just shared to the web out there in your company, like on the variety of different tools that you have. And if you're talking to an IT person, they're like, I don't want to think about it. I have no idea. <laughs> mm. And and yeah, maybe it's transcribed, maybe it's not, but it's got company content in it. So, you know, if all that's in rewatch, you have a simple little uh, tool to show me all the embeds out there, show me all the links that are, you know, out there publicly and admins can sort of lock that down or add policies to that and stuff like that. So really, we're just trying to unlock uh, knowledge that's trapped in these black holes. You'd be surprised by the number of companies that are just using G drive for, for this and they're dumping it in there. They have no idea if people have the link wow. at best they're sharing it on Slack Yeah, and Slack just scrolls away. So if you're, you know, working at a different time zone, you're going to miss that. And we kind of unlock all that for you. And, and, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the, I really feel like the secret sauce is the transcription because you're right. You can read so much faster. And as a, You know, whenever I first learned about rewatch, I was like, okay, cool. But then I was like, the transcription is, is it's one thing to transcribe, but it's another thing to transcribe really good. And I'm curious, like if you can share like details around that, I'm not asking about that right this very moment, but I'd love to hear some details about that because I feel like that is like the, the thing one, it's the scary part for some companies because, Hey, oh my, they're going to transcribe all of our stuff. Well, I better be SOC 2 compliant, which you are. But then it's like, okay, now we have a transcribe. That's a powerful tool because I could just jump to a particular spot in a video and then watch real time versus like scanning the hour long thing. You know, for us internally, the couple of things we've done uh, so far with rewatch, again, we have a small team. We haven't done it as a product thing, but it's more been like we do a lot of audio production. And so I help other people who are not so much audio engineers learn how to kind of fine tune some of their content. We use a tool called Adobe Audition. And it's not the most user-friendly friendly thing until you learn a few things. And once you do, it's pretty easy to use. So you kind of give them some classes, so to speak. I'm like, I don't want to do this over Zoom. That'd be great. I like the person. I want to hang out with them, sure. But we'll probably talk for an hour and a half. Instead, I spent 10 minutes, shared a video how to do basic video, you know, basic audio editing. And that person, Gerhard, literally edited an entire <laughs> episode of his own because he needed to whittle down 45 minutes to 20 minutes. And he was the best who knew the content and what needed to be there. Now we have editors and stuff like that, but like that was what captured my most attention. I was like able to share my knowledge quickly. They didn't waste their time learning about it. They were able to jump in the video. And now we're doing that more and more with like different aspects of our business, different trainings and stuff like that. And so as we grow and as we do more, we'll put more in there, but that's how we're currently seeing value from rewatch. And I'm like, and it's transcribed. Like that to me was a killer feature. Now, what got me really was how good it was. How do you make the transcription so good? Like it's really good. Yeah. Well, I, I think 
we all have horror stories about transcription. Like Siri comes to mind, right? It's always wrong. Um, what we found that was like really interesting because we're using simple AI sort of cloud-based transcription services that you can get off the shelf. And I think the definition of good and the expectations of good within the work context are different than it is when you are talking to a device like Siri and, and it's almost supposed to be a human. So your expectation is that it's going to be as good as a, talking to a human. And of course, Siri's not a human and definitely makes mistakes all the time. What we find is that we have companies that actually embrace the mistakes when it does make a mistake. And they actually have a whole collection of uh, mistakes that they find funny. And it's almost become like an internal uh, <laughs> joke, oh, which I think is hilarious because we're not perfect. I mean, I love that you are enjoying the transcription. It's, and it, I do think it's extremely powerful. Obviously, we all of our customers get a lot of value from it. But, you know, I think we underestimate the power of words in, in this video sort of market. Mm -hmm. And I think being able to read faster than you're able to watch videos, obviously uh, really powerful and humans make mistakes. Like the spoken word is very different than the written word. And so I'm sure if you looked at the, the transcript of this, uh, this call, it would read differently than I would have written any, any of the things that I'm saying. And all those nuances really bring out the, the, the human aspect of what it's like to sort of talk to people. And so mm -hmm. I think so much of what we're doing here is, is trying to create belonging in these remote distributed companies and being able to see, you know, in case of a zoom call that's recorded, being able to see the transcript is one thing, but also being able to see like the chat, uh, that's alongside that video, which, you know, every company has a different sort of set of rules around chat, but it's, uh, it's either directly related to what's being spoken about in the, the meeting, or it's completely off topic. It's just like, a the back of the classroom type conversations and jokes. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, whether it be transcription or whether it be the comments that are alongside of it or the additional comments that happen asynchronously or highlights that get created from it. I think all of this, you know, we're trying to make a world where attending the meeting live is great, but attending the meeting asynchronously is as good. It's, it's always been a second class citizen, even just watching a recording on its own. You're not able to participate. You have no agency into that conversation. And so we, you know, going back to the transcription, I think the transcription is a key part of that it has to be readable. It has to be understandable. And then you should be able to comment on it. You should be able to continue the conversation well past that, that meeting. Yeah. Because if not, you're by yourself, right? If you're rewatching, which still is a great brand name. Probably. Thank you. <laughs> if you're rewatching something later on, I mean, it, you just can't help but say rewatch. That's why it's so perfect. <laughs> if, if you're rewatching these meetings later on and it doesn't have the kind of tooling you've built around this, you're basically by yourself and it's boring, right? You're almost checked out unless like you have, unless it's like a requirement, you know, <laughs> like you're getting yeah. a bonus because you watched the video or something like that, you know, like, yeah, you have to keep the browser open or right. you don't get the checkbox in your training. Yeah. Or to, you know, just some, there's some sort of like, you know, intrinsic motivation to like continue, you know, otherwise you're like, this is pretty boring. I'm by myself, but at least if you have the transcription, you got some of the commenting, you got some prior coworkers highlights there. Like there's a waypoint, you know, there's almost like a guide, you know, kind of the community remains, even though they're not there real time, mm. you know, but my history with transcriptions, machine led transcriptions, at least has not been that great. Now this podcast, all of our shows are transcribed by an awesome human named Alex. He's listening to this right now. He's going to transcribe great. me telling you his name. <laughs> and uh, so we've, we've gone human led transcripts, even though there's, possibility for AI. I'm just, you know, 
like there's a lot of terms we have on this show and different shows we do that just need that human touch. Really? A hundred percent. A machine can do it. Sure. But like, it's almost harder to go back and correct the machine led version of it than it is just to have the human do it in the first place. And it still feels so weird to say this human does this job. Like as if someday the robot will replace this human. It's just so, so peculiar to even like talk in that, in that uh, aspect, but there's just so much nuance in technical conversations that is challenging. And we have this, um, this unintelligible, we actually have a little bit of a markup around our basic markdown files that are our transcripts. They're all on open source on GitHub. So if ever you want a test bed to go against, you can use our transcripts or whatever. But we have unintelligible for times whenever you or me or someone on a show would say something that you don't know. They're open source. You can go for Hacktoberfest and come in and fix unintelligibles and get your, you know, get your DigitalOcean t-shirt, for example. But sure. my experience with transcriptions hasn't been, from a machine-led standpoint, that accurate. And when I use yours, maybe it was luck of the draw. I don't know, but it was just seemed really good. Well, it's one of the, we tested a lot of different ways of doing this. And I will be honest, the first one we used, I won't bad, bad mouth uh, the system, but it was gibberish. Like it made no sense. It, it was very disheartening. Or this is early on when we first tested like, okay, could we, even possibly build a product that was good enough for this? Or is this just a fool's errand and like the transcription is going to be terrible and this is just going to be a marketing gimmick and everybody's going to, you know, never use this for that purpose. That was sort of the question we were trying to answer. And some of the, you know, we used a couple of test videos for that and we ran it through a bunch of different services and including some really big name ones. And it was just bad every time. So when we did land on what we're using now, it's a mixture of, you know, it supports a lot of uh, industry-specific jargon, uh, which is really important. Supports the ability to add your own sort of glossary of terms as well, which we don't have a feature for that, but we will. And the ability to add your own sort of internal sort of uh, you know glossary, because every company has their own terms for a bunch of stuff. They make up code words for projects, you know, stuff like that. Um, yeah. The other challenge is like proper nouns, like people's names. That's the other thing that we're constantly looking to sort of improve as well. But it was also important to us that a variety of different accents work. I slur a lot because I'm from Kentucky and I don't know what it is, but I slur a lot. And uh, maybe you'll hear it on this podcast. And so, you know, I'm not the, when I say I have an accent, I'm not using myself as an example there, but there are, there, we don't work with a bunch of people that sound identical to each other. You have to be, you know, have the technology be inclusive of a lot of different people. So that was another sort of aspect of it. And I think that is something that we put a lot of care and you know effort into to make sure that, you know, the experience of you using rewatch and, and trying to understand what was going on in a meeting um, was actually good. And yeah, it messes up sometimes. And I think mm -hmm. there's a difference in expectation that uh, we're comfortable with. The other good news is that it gets, it gets better all the time. My favorite mistranscribed uh, trans uh, word was we were talking about the company MailChimp, and it didn't catch it as the company name at first. It does now, but at first it was a mail space chimp. <laughs> and I was like reading the transcription. I forgot the context of the conversation. I was like, oh, they're talking about the company. <laughs> right. It's just one of those funny things. But more and more, uh, I think, you know, we're excited about you know, even in the last two years or year and a half of doing this, 
the technology is just getting so much better. Right. And so, yeah, I got to the, it's another reason why when you ask, you know, people ask why now, well, there's a lot of reasons why now the technology for transcription is good enough that it's usable now, um, that it's actually useful and valuable to, to read a transcript that's done by a computer. I think there will always be a, a, a space for the, uh, the human transcribed, uh, content. In fact, a lot of large companies that invest a bunch of, uh, time and effort and money into big events, whether those be internally or externally, a lot of times they want to make sure it's perfect and that it is, you know, done by a human. And so having a way for, for them to, to do that is, is something we're interested in. But as a baseline, that transcription is pretty good. And it, it's to a point now where it's valuable for companies. Yeah. The other, the other side of it is I think we're just, you know, when GitHub going all the way back to that initial use case, when GitHub started, the amount of videos they were uploading was not that much, <laughs> you know, like comparative today. Uh, you and I are you know, recording this podcast and the, there's video for us. You know, video is now a byproduct of the work we're doing every day. We don't wake up in the morning. Well, I take this back. You might do this, but most people at work do not wake up in the morning and say, I need to produce uh, a video. Uh, it's just something that happens out of the normal work we do. I think the closest thing we get yeah, is- it's exhaust. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, like you were saying that in that training for, um, for the Adobe, uh, software, somebody internally at our team decided to do a walkthrough of a 3d software blender today. Uh, and I was watching that and it was a, it was a training video for how he produced uh, some marketing material. And, uh, you know, that's the closest we get to like this very intentional sort of, I'm going to record something for people, but the vast majority of content being created today is a just like you said, it's exhaust. And I think that's where so much value just goes right out the window if you're not intentional about it. Yeah. And rewatch sort of catches it for you. Yeah, I really feel like the the clincher for me is the is the transcription because if you're a product team trying to use rewatch and you're and you're trying to catch up, I was just thinking like if you're rewatching this video from your team, it's like, well, you can almost say the next time you have a meeting, oh, I saw you at that one thing doing, leading that class. So it, it's still kind of like the, the op, you know, the office, so to speak, in quotes, the office without having the actual building be the office. The, the office essentially is, is the comings and goings of those who are involved in the company and where they connect. And in a lot of the cases these days, it's a digital connection, especially when it comes to, you know, like technical companies can tend to have a lot of remote opportunities more so than say like a rocket science. They tend to have to be near the rocket. Sure. They're theorizing and stuff like that, but at some point you have to test it mm -hmm. and you, you know, you generally put that thing into real world production or something like that. That's one example. Or if you're building a car, you can't build a car from your home. It's, it's pretty challenging to, to build a Tesla from home, for example. I don't know. 3d printers are getting pretty good. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah, for sure. You wouldn't, you wouldn't 3d print a car, would you? I would 3d print a part <laughs> for a car for sure. Yeah. Every day. <laughs> for a lot of days until it became a car. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> until it became a car. Sure. Yeah. Where'd you get those wheels? I made them. Yeah. I made them. Well, I, I think what's really interesting about what you're saying about you know, recreating the office for a lot of these companies, I think that is absolutely true. And we're trying to recreate the office without the bad parts. <laughs> you know, uh, I think speaking as somebody who builds software, you know, the amount of focus time you actually have to get in the flow of work, you need hours of time to do really deep considered work. And I think there's been this, especially since COVID, there's been this 
this idea of Zoom fatigue and everything else, but nobody's ever described it other than like you're tired of meetings. But I think it's really interesting because, you know, not only are we like a, a lot of us making that transition to working from home where you don't have that human connection as automatically as you used to by just going into the office. And so you're kind of, you kind of want that human connection. And a lot of people, you want to hop on a call more often, but in the same side of things, it's now easier than ever to just like book somebody's calendar. It's not like you have to book a room anymore. Like there's no sort of roadblocks Mm -hmm. into somebody taking some time from your calendar. So I think those two dynamics compound against each other and that create that idea of like, I mean, just meetings all day long. I mean, I don't know if you're a big TikTok user, but just scroll through TikTok and you will see meme or, you know, uh, influencer after influencer talking about how much they're on Zoom calls or whatever and all the the funny things that happen there and how tired they are. That's not the world we want to create. We don't want to recreate all the problems and maybe even make it worse because your calendar is more filled up with meetings. We want to make it so you get the benefit of working from home, all the benefits of working remotely of all the benefits of working asynchronously. And I think video, you know, we did this a long time ago with text, right? Whether it be chat or, or docs or whatever, but video and meetings just never really made the leap to this asynchronous way of working. And the vast majority of, of meetings can be done asynchronously. I'm not as, you know, some people say like, oh, this meeting could have been a Slack message or this meeting could have been an email. And those are all fairly true most of the time, but there's still a place for meeting synchronously. Sure. But the problem has always been, it's impossible to scale that. And there's only been like three ways to scale a meeting. You either have more meetings, you have bigger meetings, or you have longer meetings. And all those are terrible options. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to live in that world where I'm just like having to uh, live like that. But with Rewatch, we always like to tell people, it's like, have a smaller meeting, have a shorter meeting. You know, Don't feel like you have to in, invite everybody just so you can say that everybody had access to the information use rewatch to have a two people meet up, record that and share it out with everybody in a way that rewatch allows those, those, those folks that weren't able to participate live, they can still participate asynchronously. They can still have agency into decisions that are being made. They can, even people that join a live meeting, you know, not everybody likes to join a meeting and be the loudest voice in the room. Right. Yeah. So being able to give it five minutes, think through a question a little bit more and then participate afterwards in a way that's still, you know, has the same weight as, uh, speaking in uh, a live meeting, I think is really powerful. Um, it sort of makes it so the loudest voice in the room isn't the person who just talks the most. It, it can, it allows other voices to participate. And I think that's yeah. something that we're really proud of is when we hear other companies sort of getting that value out of it. I think you really solved for the, the missing out component, right? Like you attend, so you don't miss out. And it's actually, if you have a culture or a team philosophy that has this tool available to them and you have these practices in place to record smaller meetings or whatever, then I don't have to feel bad for missing that meeting. Cause I can catch up, you know, that to me is some interesting aspects. Now, obviously we here at Changelog are on a smaller team, so we have that problem less, but I can empathize because I've been there before and I can, I can understand how larger teams or somebody would be like, I want to stay heads down today. You know what? You guys are meeting. Cool. Fine. Tuesdays is my head down day. You schedule on Tuesday. Tough. I can't be there. 
Maybe they're more sweeter than that. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's how I am. It's just tough. I can't be there. Yeah. But the point is, is it's my time. I've locked it down, and I'm going to focus on this feature today. I'm going to knock it out because I need to get this win this week. And now you don't have to actually attend that meeting because you can get almost the same amount of value, especially if you didn't have a lot to give to the meeting, but there's a lot for you to take from it. The problem was, is I think the fatigue came from is you felt like you had to be at all these things to stay connected, and you you really didn't have to. And Maybe this is kind of left field, but, you know, rewatch. Sure, I see how you're enterprise focused. I wonder if ever you thought that this should just be a feature that Zoom has, right? Like, are you because it's like the whole Dropbox thing with Steve Jobs. If you remember that where Steve was like, I'm not buying Dropbox. They're just a feature, right? Yeah, it worked out well for Dropbox. Yeah, (laughs) sure, sure. Yeah. But, you know, I wonder if you've thought about that. Like, obviously, you have bigger goals in mind sure you know it this this seems to be an easy component to something like zoom obviously you're integrating with them how did you consider that did you consider that at all sure yeah i mean you know for us we're we're obviously like you said integrating with all these services because you know speaking frankly you know, going in and displacing a Zoom at a company is really difficult. And there's a lot of companies out there that are trying to build alternatives to live conferencing in a way that can actually move through an organization. I think that's a mm-hmm. really admirable thing. It's really difficult when you have Google Meet for free, you have Zoom as a standard, you have all these other, you know, tools sort of in the way. So for us, we wanted to meet where companies are at and where your team is and where they're at right now is they use zoom and they use Google meet. And there's no secret that zoom cloud uh, storage is a thing. The challenge is I think it's a matter of focus. This goes back to like, why is any smaller company able to maneuver faster than a giant company? Well, the things that got zoom so popular was how good its latency is, how good its audio is, how consistent that, that quality is. And, and by the way, I don't know about you all, but when I use, when I use zoom versus Google meet, it's surprising where you see their priorities. Zoom is great at prioritizing the audio because that is the most important thing uh, when you're communicating with people. And so the video might stutter, but the audio gets through. My experience, it's the opposite true with a lot of these other services. The video quality is like way better. It's like way better than 720p, but then the audio breaks up and I have no idea what they're talking about and the whole thing falls apart. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really hard problem. And so for us, we're not focused on that problem, uh, much like Zoom's not focused on our problem. Uh, And I think, you know, that's sort of how we approach it is like, we know that, Everywhere on the value chain, there's an opportunity to build businesses. And so for us, we're really focused on making the the best world-class on-demand video player and video experience uh, for, for teams to communicate and sure to share knowledge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents, they impact everyone, not just SREs. They give teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. 
what would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum are responding to an incident. They can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. They have incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency, declare and mitigate incidents all from inside Slack, Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics allow you to extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident runbooks, they let you create custom automation rules to convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want. You can create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. The next step is to try it free. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all Fire Hydrant features included. No credit card is required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. And by SignalWire. SignalWire offers APIs, SDKs, and edge networks around the world for building the realest real-time video and video communication apps with less than 50 milliseconds of latency. They use WebSockets to deliver 300% lower latency than APIs built on REST, making it ideal for apps where every millisecond and responsiveness makes a difference, like apps that need instant natural language understanding, real-time machine vision, or large-scale video and audio conferencing. Here's what makes them different. They use MCU, multi-point control unit that mixes all video and all audio feeds on the server side and then distributes a single unified stream back to every participant. That way, every participant in the apps you ship experience the same video and the same audio. Your apps have none of the awkward audio effects, obvious lag, and jumpy video. It's all smooth, great UX, creating a more lifelike virtual experience without compromising audio or the video quality. Head to SignalWire.com slash video, mention Founders Talk and get an extra 5,000 video minutes. Again, SignalWire.com slash video and mention Founders Talk. questions and one of the ones i like to ask a lot is the mistakes and failures because i love the the raw factor of this of this show really it's it's not okay connor you're amazing you were somehow <laughs> lucky to raise this venture capital early and you hit product market fit early and you got these enterprise customers and all, it, sure that's all great but i'm sure at some point there was like some fails some mistakes some stutters and one in particular that i think I've personally struggled with in growing changelog has been not scaling myself quick enough. I want to do a job. I kind of took this advice from Jason Fried a while back from Basecamp, like do a job yourself first before you hire for it. And I kind of took that too far and have <laughs> taken it too far. And so maybe speak to that. Like, what do you, what do you mean by not scaling yourself as a founder fast enough? Cause I mean, you tend to be in charge of lots and have lots of responsibilities. So you want to make sure it's done perfect, right, better, whatever. How do you mean and how'd you do that? Yeah, I, I think this is, well, I take comfort in hearing that I'm not the only one. Uh, scaling yourself is is probably the most unnatural thing that a lot of people do, uh, is figuring out you know, that you can do more together than you can alone. And I just, for some reason, as truism as that is, and we would all nod along with that, nobody would argue against it, and yet 
I feel like everybody I know struggles with it. And so for us, it, you know, it manifested in a really obvious way in, in that we just didn't hire fast enough. We thought, you know, I'm a designer. I can do all the design. Uh, you know, th- th- this is fine. Or, or Scott, my co-founder, I can do all the engineering. We don't need to hire engineers. And I think we took that as far as we could and probably crossed that line too much. I think one uh, particular time in which this sort of manifested into a real consequence, we were working with a large company that everybody would know about. I'm not going to name them here, but we were doing a deal and we had gone through all of it. We were really excited about going through their security questionnaire, which most people don't say, but as I described earlier, we're, we're feeling like our posture is really good there. We're going through it all. We're describing how like good our security is. And then they finally were like, Hey, we need to know the org chart. Like who's in charge of security. Who's in? <laughs> and, uh, it was a two person org chart. It was just Scott and me. That's so funny. And they looked at it and it, and they just, Hey, the, are you serious? Like, did you, is this, did you forget to fill this part out? Like, and we were like, no, we're doing everything. And the whole deal fell apart. <laughs> and, uh, that was the reason why it wasn't that they didn't believe us. They just, I think even from that standpoint, it, uh, was evident that we weren't scaling ourselves and that there, there are natural consequences of that. Like whether or not things slip through the cracks or, you know, in my case, you know, I can't do all the design turns out, uh, it turns out that I need a lot of help with that. And, or, or that, uh, you know, Scott being the only person who can fix the website if something, if a bug prop pops up and having to wake up in the middle of the night all the time and not being able to distribute that sort of burden. I think those are all just very small uh, examples, but I think this is something that, you know, we constantly deal with as a team. You know, there's this fine balance between being lean and we, we do, we try to run a lean, efficient startup that, you know, is focused on building a business and we're not trying to spend a bunch of money just because you have it. I think that story's played out and it's not one that I want to sort of uh, participate in. So when we spend money, we do it very intentionally. And sometimes what that means is that we hold off hiring a role until it is absolutely painful to not have a person doing this. But to your point, uh, I think the other thing that needs to balance that out is getting too comfortable just hiring and then saying, oh, that problem solved. Somebody does that now. I don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And so f- for me personally, I, I've definitely, you know, you as a founder, you sort of sometimes err towards focusing on what you like doing, even if that's not what's best for the company. And so there's been times when, you know, my focus really needed to be on go to market. It needed to be on sales, all this stuff that I, you know, before starting a company, I really don't have that much experience with. I, I have zero experience. Let's just be clear. But that's the beauty of startups is, is that you're learning constantly and you can't, it's not just enough to learn, but like you said, you have to do the job. You have to do founder led sales. You have to learn everything you can about uh, things that you're not comfortable with. If anything, a startup puts you in very uncomfortable situations where you have to sink or swim. You have to learn how to do something. Mm-hmm. And it could be sales. It could be marketing. It could be uh, a little bit of engineering. It could be anything. S- uh, support, customer success, like all of these things, you can't outsource it. That's not, you know, every time I talk to a founder and they're like, oh, I, you know, hired a f- contracting firm that'll just handle this for me. Or, or I just hired this person. I don't have to think about that. It's like, on one hand, 
more power to you. That's great. If you found somebody who can do this very, uh, you know, at a high level that is great at the job and that you can put a lot of trust into fantastic. That's what everybody's looking for. But I would still say you can't outsource, you know, especially early on, you just can't outsource core parts of your business. And so finding that balance is real, you know, a daily, I wouldn't call it a struggle, but it's a daily challenge is like understanding you got to scale yourself. You can only do so much and you have to focus as a founder on where you can provide the most value for your company. At the same time, you got to understand the different components of your company. You got to know enough to jump into any sort of conversation and at least have some sort of understanding of what's going on while building a team around you that can educate you. I like being able to get into a room and saying, Hey, everybody, you know, I'm an idiot when it comes to X. So treat me like an ignorant fool, but here's some questions I have. And then that age old question of like, what are the unknown unknowns for me that you all know I should be asking about, but I'm not asking about, right? The, that helps level you up. And uh, definitely, you know, it's one of the things I'm most proud of is the team that we are building uh, that can sort of bring that expertise to the table and feel comfortable to, you know, talk to me when I'm not thinking through something deeply enough. Because oftentimes I, I look at something and it's a bunch of arrogant people do, like myself, <laughs> I say, this is simple. We can, yeah. this isn't that complicated. And actually it is. <laughs> and okay, cool. Let's talk through it and, and let's figure out how to figure this out together. What gear do you think that, uh, that you're in, in terms of like, if, if you're driving a car or you're just a vehicle of some sort, do you think you're in the slow and steady gear or the fast and whatever gear? I don't know. Pick your version of fast. Sure. I think it's very easy to look at other companies and see just a trend of, Hey, they started off slow and then it you know, got faster and faster and then it just grew and it was huge. What we found is that it ebbs and flows. Now, I don't mean that it gets slow and steady and that it's comfortable, but sometimes you need to make sure you got a handle on where you're at before you throw fuel in the fire. <laughs> We're mixing metaphors here, but making fire, driving cars. Yeah. For instance, don't go hire 20 salespeople if you don't have product market fit yet. <laughs> you know, that's not going to solve anything. It's going to cause a lot of other problems. So it's not so much keep it slow and steady, but I think you do need to get to a place where you feel confident in the core value prop and the, the value that you can prove out at, you know, all these customers uh, with all your customers. You need to have confidence in that traction before you start saying, all right, let's scale up and move really fast uh, with confidence in scaling up a go to market motion. And I think those are the transitions that none of us necessarily expect going in or when it's quite going to happen. But I think it's those types of decisions and discernment that you have to sort of constantly be evaluating in your company. When's the right time to, to swing? Yeah. Once you kind of see a pattern in your successes, it's like, okay, we can probably recreate that. Now that we have GitHub, Brex, et cetera, whatever the customer path you've hit, it's like, okay, we've, we've achieved that confidence and not so much to leverage their brand, but to leverage the learnings and the product direction that's currently in place, we can recreate the success here in this vector of a company. And if we have a team that can outbound or if we can attract them to our pages or, you know, whatever on Twitter, or maybe you're doing TikToks, I don't know, but uh, maybe you're just on TikTok watching. This. I wish my marketing team won't let me, they, okay. they really won't let me. I'm, I'm a big believer in TikTok, but well, okay. We're, we're in, we're two pieces in a pod, man. I love TikTok. I think it's actually a, an underused 
marketing tool, but I just don't know how to use it for us. I, I like to consume content. I haven't figured out how to create content. I'm not sure I'm much of a creator on TikTok. But. You know, the All In podcast has done a good job of using TikTok. I don't know if you watch that. Is that Jason Calacanis's podcast? Yeah, I've, I've seen. They, they did a really great job of clips. And I, I love that. And that's what we do here, too. We do a lot of clips. We mainly share them on Twitter. We started to do more on TikTok, but I really appreciate that because I don't have to be a loyal end-to-end listener of that podcast to get some value from it. And that's what I love most about just the clips philosophy, but in particular the way they have their back and forth between the the cast on that show. I I really appreciate the even pushback sometimes from the different characters on the show. I, I'm a fan. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a, that's a good example. It's a good example of using your byproducts to put it on TikTok. Where are we going with that with TikTok? Oh, I don't know. I brought it up. I'm constantly bringing up TikTok. Uh, I think it's a really interesting, you know, looking towards the future. It's video, right? Yeah. And there's the context of TikTok is obviously a social network sharing frivolous videos, you know, fun videos. There's obviously an advertising model. That's a very different world than what we're talking about. But my for you feed is is not at all. I mean, there's a, an occasional comedy in there, but it's mostly serious content. Yeah. It's mostly DIY. Here's how to level up your life. Here's how to motivate, you know, your I've got a lot of SDR type stuff, so like sales development roles or business development roles in there. Like there's a lot of great creators on that front. And I'm just attracted to that kind of content because I, I like to, which is maybe why hiring has been hard because I really like a lot of the aspects of our business. You know, I like to do a lot of the jobs, but I can't do them all well myself. I will do them all mediocre mm-hmm. and fail, you know, often potentially even instead of just like doing one job really, really well. And I'll bring up a past guest up, Joe Prococo. He's the uh, co-CEO of Titan. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of what they're doing at Titan. I don't know if you have heard about them or what they're doing, but they're, they're doing some interesting stuff in the investment space. But one thing he said as a, as a CEO in particular, that is the job of the CEO is, is three things. It's capital, 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 basically. And it is, it's find capital or generate capital. Like that's your job as a CEO. Where to put that capital, you know, what, where should, what the sequencing is to make your company grow and then deploy that capital. That's the only job as a CEO. And that kind of hit me because I don't, that is not my focus. Now, obviously you can call yourself a CEO of a two person company, but I still have a lot of those attributes. Even if I'm not commanding a 20 person or 50 person team, in many ways we, we should have five or so people, but we just tend to do all the jobs ourselves. So we're working on that. But I, I kind of, I kind of like that aspect and I'm really glad he gave that advice because that made me think. What do you think about that kind of advice? Yeah, no, as you were talking about that, I was just sort of nodding along in my head, thinking that that's one of the things I like most about Rewatch. And, and I don't mean Rewatch the product necessarily, uh, but Rewatch the company or any startup is that this is a whole conversation about recruiting and what, what kind of person wants to join a startup versus going someplace safe. Right. And by the way, when I say safe, I don't mean that derogatorily. Is that a word? Derogatorily? I don't mean that to be derogatory, but I think it's, there's a certain type of person, myself included, that's broken, that doesn't know how to function in a, in a, in a big company anymore that wants to sort of be close to the business. And to your point, you know, capital, 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 I think whether you're CEO or an individual working on a feature at a startup, one of the benefits of joining a startup is that you're close to that conversation ideally. 
Um, they want to have insight in it. You may be a software engineer. You may be a designer. I just had a one-on-one today, and that was the question. Like, hey, how are we doing? No, not the product roadmap. I think, you know, that's fine. I have insight into that. I want to know how the business is doing. Like, what what could be, you know, how are we prioritizing the roadmap to position ourselves best in terms of the business? And I'm realizing that, you know, more and more people are really hungry for that content. And I think back to all my time at, you know, different companies of various sizes. And I've seen a lot of, well, they're giant companies today, but they weren't when I was there necessarily. And either we had no insight into how we were doing or, you know, that was kept from us or we, I don't know, maybe I just didn't have the interest yet. But so much of what I do is anytime we make a decision, frame it within the context of the business. Why are we doing this? Why are we prioritizing this big bet on the product roadmap? Like, what are all the benefits, not just to users, which is it goes back to that designer mindset of like why I'm so drawn to this is because it's a multifaceted decision. There are benefits to the user. There's there's customer requests that certainly have uh, sort of merit and sort of help us prioritize this. But there's also just strategic things that we want to do that set us up better for the next thing. Or there's a reason to this sequence. Or there's a reason why we're not parallelizing some of this work and we, we are going to do this, then that, then the other thing. Explaining your thought process around that. And I use Rewatch. I literally pull out my phone and record it much like a TikTok <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and just have an authentic conversation or just, hey, here's my thoughts on this. And what's really great is that people push back on me. They're like, hey, like, why are we doing it this way and not this way? Uh, given your criteria for this decision, I think we should do it this other way. And I think that's really interesting and powerful. Yeah. And I, you know, how you deploy capital, how you raise capital, all of those things are, are the business and, and you're not alone in it. You know, they always say that CEOs are you know, very lonely. And I, and I understand that. Like there are certain things that you just can't expect other people to understand at your company or whatever, but there's plenty parts of the job that if you're just transparent about it and whether or not you're, you know, maybe not sure of something or you are sure of something and you want to get it out there, just communicating that and, you know, allowing rewatch, you know, in our case, we use rewatch to actually, you know, distribute that thinking. And it creates a much more authentic sort of conversation that's still asynchronous, that's still, you know, watchable on demand and all that stuff. So I don't have to like call in all hands just to sort of address a decision that we made. It's just a quick thing that we can do. Yeah. And it feels unlike an email or a Google doc that's sent out. I don't know how many times you've gotten a, I got a big job, like the CEO, like you get on this big company wide memo. Yeah. A memo. You're not, you're mm-hmm. not replying to that. I'm not replying to that email. And the the weirdos that do, you're always like, ugh, they just replied <laughs> to the whole company. I don't know. And then, you know, whatever happened to that person? And he's pushing back, fired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's like a lot of fear around that. But, you know, being able to have uh, open dialogue where you're reminding people you're human. This isn't a written yeah. memo. I'm not reading from a, a note or a teleprompter. This is it certainly takes the pressure off for sure. Exactly. And what you're communicating because the medium sets the tone of the message, so to speak. That's right. You know, like if you were writing it, if you're writing a memo, I almost said reading, if you're writing a memo, it, it's a bit more formal. Yeah. You know, whereas if you're TikTok style approachable video, hey, by the way, push back on this idea. This is what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, a great feedback loop. And I think that's one thing that I think really where Rewatch helps fit in as a product. And maybe that's why you've seen some fit obviously why you see in some fit is that feedback loop that wasn't there before that is now there and possible. And there's that community that, uh, that sort of jumps around it. 
I'm going to mention the show with Joe one more time because there was a question I asked him that I don't often ask. I think that might have been the first time I asked, but it was, what keeps you up at night? And you said the word sequencing in your response. And that was actually exactly what Joe said was this idea of <laughs> what is the right sequence to get this business right? And he described it as different flavors of the business. So you can build rewatch one way, optimize for this particular flavor or this particular outcome, or you can build it this way with this particular outcome in mind. And I said, you know, Joe, what's, what keeps you up at night as a CEO? And he said sequencing. And I, like, it's the first time I heard that answer. So don't steal Joe's answer, but maybe it is sequencing for you. But what, what would that answer be for you? No, that's really interesting. I didn't know he said that. But and I don't know if I would use those words, but making sure you're focused on the right thing is what keeps me up at night. Or when I feel like we're not focused on the right thing. And I'm at fault for that because I sent us all down this path and maybe we've learned a little bit more. I think, you know, oftentimes, again, this goes back to like the, you know, at the end of the day, it's pride and inflated sense of self when you feel like, especially a CEO, like whatever that title is, is inflated in and of itself, but you're taking all the responsibility of a decision. And if at any point you feel like, oh, I can't change my mind or, you know, with new information, we can't shift that's when you're just in your, your own head. And honestly, like it is pride that like, Oh, well, everybody's expecting me to have known it before. No, they don't. (laughs) They don't (laughs) expect that of you. What they do. I feel like what, you know, I've always respected in leaders and what I hope, you know, the people that I work with, you know, see in me from time to time is, Hey, there's new information. We've learned a little bit more and we need to change things. And so, yeah, the things that keep me up at night is usually the things that, feel out of your control, but actually are. And so you just sort of have to walk yourselves you know, back from that. But I do think there's some merit into the sequencing thing. It, and I think the reason, you know, I don't know what his answer exactly was, but when I think about it, it's, you know, you're, you're lining up dominoes, right? You're hopeful that this is compounding sort of value and, and impact on the business as you go. And so, you know, you're, you're afraid you've made the wrong bet and there's ways of, you know, de-risking that. And I think the way you do it is talking to customers, talking to your team, walking through and, 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 you know, playing out the, the expected story in the future. It's one of those things, like I know it's played out now, but Amazon always writes the press release, for instance, for a, for a feature. Well, I think you can do that and sort of project out into the future and say, what are all the things that this is expected to do, but also do like a pre-mortem. Mm-hmm. I know people do post-mortems all the time, but like, how's this going to fail? Like what, what are we going to run into? What are all the different ways that you think we could fail going forward? And how can we mitigate that? And I think honestly planning, and when I say planning, I don't mean like a six month process to plan or a business plan necessarily, but just talking through that, it helps. And I think, you know, uh, again, we, we sort of, have open, transparent conversation. And I try to record my raw thoughts sometimes and make it clear that when they're raw and that I don't have a high level of conviction around this idea yet, but here it is. What if we did X, Y, and Z? I think those are the sorts of things that help help with that quite a bit. I kind of disagree that it's played out because I think the I think more people need to hear that sort of post-mortem, pre-mortem, working backwards philosophy. Because I think if you're listening to this show, both you, Connor, and the audience who's listening. If you're on this show or you're listening to this show and you haven't read Working Backwards yet, you should at least check out the Prime chapter, which is amazing. They talk about, Amazon talks about essentially how they built Prime and all the things that went into it. And it's this Working Backwards methodology that is really, in a lot of ways, the secret sauce of Amazon. And it's the press release first or the how can we fail idea. And I think more people need to hear that 
and potentially put it into practice despite how small, like we try to do that here. Like how could this fail? If we launched this new show or if we took on this new partner, or if we did this in this way, or we did these things in what way would our business fail or what way would, would the perception of who we are, or who we are as a business change. And we try to think, I mean, you try to future some of those things, but that idea of working backwards, I think is, is definitely not overplayed. It needs to be, spoken from the rooftops and, and, and scrutinize and try it again and again. Cause I think it's a powerful thing. Yeah. Not just for business for life. Like honestly, yeah, not to, not to business book your life or whatever, or your personal life. But there's so many times where it's just like, hold on, what's the worst. I think this is like, uh, I'm not speaking intelligently about this, but I think there's some aspect of stoicism where it's like, Hey, what's the worst case scenario? And let's work backwards off of that. Is it actually acknowledging that makes you feel good because you're like, it's not that bad. Yeah. Worst case scenario, there's ways of maneuvering. So yeah, I totally agree with you. You're right. Ways to get around fear. Yeah. What's the worst that could happen? Okay. What's the likelihood that will happen? Okay. Now that we've solved for that, it's like, okay, is it going to happen? Probably not. Let's just give it a try. That kind of thing. And, uh, it's also this idea just generally for ideas or choices in life, this idea of trying it on. It's kind of what you're doing, right? It's the aspect of taking a piece of clothing and putting it on your body. Does it fit? Do I like it? Whatever. No, that's the actual idea is like try this decision on. What would it actually be like tomorrow if we launched that feature? How would our teams change? Will we need more support around that? Will we need to hire? Does that take us closer to or further from our enterprise goals? Because that's where you're seem to be being led and seeing success there. Would that mean we need a self-serve avenue? And does that actually depreciate our ability to win enterprise customers? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Like you got to try those those things on. And that's kind of what that is, is working backwards, trying it on. Does it actually fit? Yeah. And you're speaking my language as a designer too, because it's prototyping. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I always try to you know, when we were building design tools at Facebook, you always say like, Hey, let's build tools to help designers live with it. Hey, I don't know if this is a good plan. It could look beautiful on a canvas. It could look great in a, you know, a video, you know, interaction, uh, you know, mobile interaction could look amazing. What's it going to look, what's it going to feel like to live with this decision for a week, a month? Like, okay, you need to figure out a way to live with this decision. I think our business is the same way. We live with decisions either by playing it out and sort of projecting out. But the best case scenario is, you know, with feature development, for instance, like if you're taking a big bet, the faster you can get the very minimum, this goes back to the the first step we took with rewatch is like, what is the bare minimum piece of valuable software that we could build the, the simplest version of this thing and just live with it for a little while. We've got a feature, uh, two features actually that we're using right now. The first one I'll talk about and the next, the other one I won't, but, uh, you know, we're integrating, as I mentioned earlier, zoom chat and zoom chat's really interesting because it's not a transcript. It's not a comment. It could have something to do with the timestamp. It could be totally different. So there's been a lot of experimentation with like, how is the right way of like surfacing Zoom chat for other people who are watching a video recording uh, asynchronously. And uh, we tried a lot of different ways and we lived with it with our own team meetings and it worked great. And then we realized we were kind of too self-aware of the feature and we were using it in the perfect way. But uh, over time, you just iter- I mean, it's just iteration and product iteration. But I think it's really important to live with it. Uh, and, and hopefully that's with like a real sort of context of like real data and things like that. So anyways, that's a whole nother conversation about how to do software development, but I think it's all intertwined. 
So, so how does the feature work then? Does it does it is it like a sidecar, not really chat, but it's kind of chat, or is it sort of like a text atta- attachment to the artifact that is the video? Like, how's it work? It's kind of both, actually. So sometimes it's very great to have it in line in the sidebar, just like a comment uh, aligned like almost like a document next to the transcript. Um, but when you click to expand that conversation, you need to really have the context of the other chat that's going on after and before. So yeah, we pop open a, a nice little uh, modal for you to sort of read the chat at any sort of timestamp and have that visibility. But we don't lose the serendipity of somebody giving you a thumbs up or you know being really excited about something the speaker said, for instance. Mm-hmm. So finding that right balance of, hey, sometimes chat just needs to be in its own little window that it's like responding to a previous chat message that could have been a minute prior. Right. Yeah. But sometimes it's nice to see like an in the moment reaction to something the speaker said too. So finding that balance and I know I'm doing a terrible job explaining the UI here, but, uh, we think we found a really good balance. Your, your visual, your verbal version of the UI is terrible. I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> it's, it's hard, hard to grok, but I kind of understand it. But you know, I am thankful that you're doing something with it because so often do you have like even here in Riverside, we record our podcast with Riverside and there is a chat option with it, but that chat just goes away. Like it's never an artifact of the ending, at least not so far. Maybe down the line, they'll make it a, a feature. But after this, we get a video version of it. We get the two audio pieces. And there's a couple other pieces to the tooling. We get some screenshots even, but like the the chat, which is sometimes, you know, a link or several important links. Mostly it's links because it, it's 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 not I mean, you're already on the video, so there's no sense really to have like this extra linear piece of content, you know, that's chronologically important somehow. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And you've all have seen that challenge. Like, how do you really fit it in? But just to abandon it altogether is also not a good solution because you're like, I'm like, I kind of want to keep this window open because there's some things in chat I've got to pull out now and put somewhere else that's completely separate from the artifact. And if you're going to integrate with Zoom and suck the video in, don't leave the chat there and just abandon it. You got to do something with it. So at least you're bolting it on at, at worst case. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, losing context around, for instance, a link that's shared that, well, how many people have been referencing an internal wiki or something at their company mm-hmm. and somebody posts the link in chat? Well, what if somebody's watching that after the fact? They don't have that link. In Rewatch's case, it's referencing another customer call, which is in Rewatch. So not being able to s- sort of see that sort of link pop open. There's all sorts of metadata around the conversation that we're having, whether it be the slide deck that you're using to present right now or, or you know whatever you have it. Those need to be attached to the video in some way. Mm-hmm. And the more you can integrate that into the experience, uh, the better. Yeah. I almost needed like, uh, I was thinking like modes because it reminds me of, gosh, what is that blogging tool? I can't believe I'm so old. I can't forget. WordPress owns it. It was like the original blogging platform. Oh, uh, uh, movable type? It was after that one. Good question. What is the name of that? I can't remember it, but it, I'm sure like, if I find it, I'll throw it in chat, (laughs) please. Yeah, please. Well, they had like different modes. You can put a video up, you can put a comment up. It it was like, it had different modes essentially when you published and it was super popular, very design focused. You should totally know this, Connor. Is it uh, Tumblr? Tumblr. Yes. Gosh. How did I forget that Tumblr? As soon as you said like I had different types. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It has, I was, yeah. Movable type does ring a bell on that front, but it had like different modes when you published okay, is this a video piece of content? So it's almost like that where it's like, is this presentation slide led? Yep. You know, that way when you upload it, the video and the slides kind of coincide. 
because obviously they're connected, you know, in terms of the linear fashion, the chronological flow of the of the video content is going to be in line with the slides potentially, you know, in terms of advancing and whatnot. Definitely. It's almost like you need to take that into account. But that also complicates things. It does, but I think you're on to something. And it's it's one of the best parts about our product roadmap. And going back to the, like the the challenge of the tools, like sequencing out and seeing all these for lack of a better word, obvious things that would make the product like way better. Yeah. And and that list goes on and on and on. It's very self-evident. I'm sure a lot of the listeners yourself are thinking about things you would expect to see or want to see. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's the thing that's most frustrating is saying, we know that we want to do this, but there's like several other things that are, you know, prioritized. It's I would say sequencing gets to it, but it's also prioritization. And sometimes prioritization is painful if you're doing it right. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that's the exciting thing about this. And like from a product roadmap standpoint, you know, I don't know if you've ever worked at a company where you're just like, what is the next thing we possibly could do to this thing? <laughs> you know, hopefully not. Hopefully we're all more creative than that. But I think with, uh, with video, it just feels endless. And so mm-hmm. uh, I think that's also a risk, right? You could get spun up on a lot of different ideas um, that get you distracted from the core thing. How often then, since you say, you know, what else could you do with it? How often do you get confused with, say, Loom or other competing products? Like how often do you have to explain rewatch in comparison to something else? Because... Like even in my early days of using it, I was like, I'd already been a Loom user and I'm like, this is very similar, but not the same, but I can kind of use Loom in these ways. But rewatch is totally focused on like this being your GitHub TV or your changelog TV. Like this is your, like how often from a market fit perspective, do you have to constantly push back on what another tool is and what you're not in comparison to it? Because maybe it has like Loom is really well known, not that rewatch isn't, but it's got a. I would say a bread or brand awareness than rewatch us. Loom's been around for a while. Yeah. Right. Exactly. No, that's a fair question. And they're very similar. We are similar in a lot of ways and very different in a lot of ways too. And I think this is where like, you know, if you're just looking at a list of features or looking at a, a list of product focused things, you know, that's only one slice of the picture. I think, you know, I'm not going to speak for Loom, but uh, for our, our, from our standpoint, when we go talk to customers, the problems that we're positioning ourselves next to and the sort of go-to-market posture and pa- pricing and or not necessarily pricing, but packaging and like, what are we actually trying to solve for you? It's, it's a different problem. And we don't often have to disambiguate. In fact, uh, many of our customers use Loom uh, side by side with Rewatch. We actually Is that right? we have a feature where you can import uh, your Loom videos if you'd like uh, for more distribution or just to make sure it's part of like the common sort of knowledge base. And I think that's like the core difference when we think about this. Like video is a core uh, source of knowledge and the fullness of not just one video but all the video for years and years, sort of in one place. It's really powerful and different sort of problem to solve. And so, yeah, I mean, certainly there are tools, more often than not, we're explaining to them why we're different from G Drive. <laughs> I already distribute this. I, I have a G Drive link, right? Right. Well, yeah, that's not a great experience. Do you have any, you know, you have no analytics around that. You have no idea, you know, if people are seeing it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a very straightforward conversation to have. But, um, okay. you know, not often do we have to really describe the difference. Um, I think... GitHub ran into this early on is like, you know, as they started expanding and doing things, they started adding some more ubiquitous features like project management, for instance. Well, there's a lot of project management companies out there. Are you competing with Jira now? Are you? And the answer was always like, no, of course not. Like we love Jira's hyper successful and certainly they have GitHub 
specific competitors. Maybe that was a bad example, but there's plenty of other project management tools that folks like to use. And so, you know, there's a big market out there and there's a lot of people that may have a really strong opinion around what screen recorder they want to use, for instance. And that's totally fine. We, we want to play well with them and play nice and, and make sure that content is sort of available to your team. But for the team that doesn't have a whole lot of opinions about that, we're also happy to provide our own screen recorder for you. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that's just a strategic sort of positioning for us is that we, we want to sit in the middle. There, there's a growing amount of tools out there that are all video. In fact, talk to any SaaS CEO and ask them if video or audio is on their roadmap. And it doesn't matter if you're a design tool or, or any other kind of tool. Uh, there's a good chance it's on there. Where's all that content going? Like, where does it go afterwards? Um, <laughs> it's easier than ever to build a tool like what we're using right now to record this podcast. I'm not going to say it's easy, by the way. It is hard, but it's easier than it was when Zoom started. Um, the infrastructure is there. Yeah, the barrier to enter is definitely lower for sure. Exactly. And that's only going to get easier and easier to enter. And I think there's going to be a, and is an explosion of tools that help people create AV content. Yeah. I really like and appreciate that perspective from you because when I asked you about Zoom and being just a feature of Zoom, which was, I was not by any means trying to say rewatch is <laughs> just a feature. I was trying to get your reaction really. And then I asked you about Loom. I like, I like your perspective in terms of we just want to be the place where you organize it and get value from it. Not so much like, okay, you have to use our recorder over the Loom recorder or you can own like I like that where it's not the all or nothing model. Like we are just a place and can be the best place really for you to put your videos in a transcribable fashion that your people collect around and organize rather than bike shedding over. Okay, you use that loom recorder. Okay, you can't upload that video. Okay. That's not allowed here. The kind of thing. Yeah. I, I like that idea. I mean, it's that's a very diplomatic approach to the to the market because you're just trying to solve the problem for the teams rather than trying to be the only game in town when it comes to recording video. Totally. And I think the other reality of it is going back to our sort of go-to-market sort of strategy is we're trying to get the whole company. There's a lot of tools that the whole company uses. And if you're excluding one group or you're excluding an entire tool uh, that maybe is embedded for a very specific use case, like that's not a good plan. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you want to be... Uh, able to integrate. You want to have an open API. You want to be able to work with all these tools. And for the companies that don't have, you know, like you said, don't have an embedded thing. Okay. We have a really good solution for you that works fully integrated with the rewatch. And, you know, that'll be a strategy that we continue, uh, going forward. I also think like the expectations around these tools is getting higher and higher and there will be more specialized video tools, just like I'm sure there are more specialized podcasting, uh, you know, platforms and things like that. And I'm sure the tool chain from getting this thing recorded all the way to distributing it is very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so like it can be, you know, yeah, can be, or it can be as simple as you need to. If this was your first time, you probably keep it as simple as you, as you could. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, we kind of take the same tack in terms of direction and what's next. What's the. Where are you heading? What's the future for Rewatch? I know you, you've got a real focus on enterprise. You got a real focus on getting the whole company. I love that in terms of a, a business plan because, I mean, one customer is always a big customer. It's never, not always not a small deal, but you tend to probably lean towards larger deals, which is great for the balance sheet, great for growing the business, great for just growth in general. It's probably great for the morale of the company. Like, oh, we just landed X and they bring 
all this and look at all this feedback we get because of <laughs> how they're going to help us grow our knowledge based on how our tool sucks or how it's really great, you know, in certain aspects, which is great for growth and product team. So what's next? What's, what's the, what's next on the horizon for you guys? Well, you know, I, you might be able to listen back to the rest of the, the podcast and glean sort of where my interest lies in a couple of little areas, uh, which I won't get too specific about, uh, for now, I'll let you all listen back and see if you can pick up on what I'm talking about. But I think like going forward, there's a lot of things that we want to do to expand the platform. Uh, we've already invested in, in mobile apps, for instance, on iOS and, and iPad, but Android's coming down the line. I think, you know, again, getting meet rewatch needs to meet everybody where they're at and no matter what tool and platform they use for that. But I think what's most exciting for me is that, you know, believe it or not, we all are carrying around these like great movie cameras in our pocket these days. <laughs> There's like some of the best cameras that anybody's ever had and the ability to create content lightweight and share it with your team in very small and focused ways, but also broadly to the whole company that's an area and a problem that we want to solve. We want to make it so the same type of content that you love uh, on a variety of different platforms, there, there's a use case internally for that. And I think that's that's something we're really interested in exploring mm -hmm. more. So I would, you know, look for that. You know, look for more on that over the the next year. But you know, aside from that, we're also really interested in just continuing, like I said, expanding the platform, more more support for other devices. Um, continue to build out our screen recorder to be multi-platform. It is on Windows and Mac already, but it, just continue to bolster up that that solution. And then also, transcription is extremely powerful. Right now, we only support English. There's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. And uh, it's been really exciting to see other people come to us and, like you said, building our knowledge base about how we could improve the product. Well, that's one resounding one that we hear quite a bit. So we're going to be you know, expanding the capability of the platform in that regard as well. Wow. That would be challenging. So I guess then you would automate conversion from English to other supported languages, or would you you know, put a human behind that? Or is it sort of like a dual prong approach? What can you share about the ideas you've thought through so far? Sure. Well, I think there's two ways that you can handle it. So there's one side of this that is transcribing audio in a different language. And that's extremely uh, useful as you think about, you know, other companies uh, that may have English as a first uh, language, but also may support or be from another country where their main language is in English. That's an obvious one. It gets more tricky when you think about companies, we were, for instance, working with uh, or talking with a company out of Europe, and they had acquired quite a bit of companies across the EU. And yes, English was their first language or their business language, but there was a variety of people whose first language wasn't English. And so it was more of an inclusion sort of perspective where being able to translate a transcription into any other language was really exciting. So just being able to support different people, uh, you know, whether they want to consume the content in their own language or, or you know, in, a, in English, that's fine. But having optionality is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and so going back to that core principle of we're trying to make it as easy as possible for you to get the content out of this video, it plays right into that uh, solution. So, yeah. Interesting. Anything else that I haven't asked? I know there's, there's sometimes I have a lens for which I ask questions and sometimes we meander, sometimes we're laser focused. <laughs> That's what I love about this show is we, we really get to cross a lot of different gaps when it comes to a product journey or founder's journey and the things they've gone through to build and run their business. But is there something I haven't asked you that you're like, man, this is, why did you ask me that, Adam? And I want to share it. 
You know, not off the top of my head. I think we, we did meander in a good way. I liked it. I liked the conversation we had. Yeah. You know, I think, yeah, I think we covered everything. Cool. Yeah. We'll leave it there. Did, was there anything you wanted me to, to cover? I mean, I guess you were asking the question, so that, that was already uh, done. Well, that would be more of me leading, Connor, but. Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. No, yeah. I think, you know, I, I'm a fan of what you've done. I think, you know, what I'm most excited about really is is how teams can leverage this because I always, especially in remote worlds, there's a lot of things that are changing, but also staying the same. And the, the thing that stays the same is the human connection and mm-hmm. that lack of water cooler, that lack of, you know, sort of collective wisdom and the ability to have, I mean, I love the, I didn't know about the behind the scenes of GitHub and the GitHub or TV and then turn GitHub TV. I think that's just super cool. And to hear that you had seen this issue or actually this internal tool that was really useful in other companies of similar size was like, okay, here's something, here's a nut to crack because this could be a service this could be so much better. It doesn't have to be this internal tool that is just kludgy. It can actually be, you know, really valuable to teams. And I think that's what I'm most excited about for rewatches is if teams can check it out and get value from it from that perspective, being able to stay in the same page, not have to attend every meeting, you know, be able to share one message with the rest of the team and you, and you async it. It's no longer synchronous communication. It's asynchronous. And for me, the killer feature really is a transcription. I think that that had opened up so much for you searching key phrases commenting like it just really makes this boring video interactive and actually much more valuable in that context so for me that's yeah that's what i think is is really the interesting bits that you've really solved for well with rewatch so if you keep doing that connor that'd be that'd be great yeah that's that's what our plan is that's uh, it's our roadmap right there that's our core dna yeah exactly yeah i think the only last thing i would add is is that you know, going back to that conversation about that transition from us relying on being in the office information flow through osmosis, I think a lot of people that that's gone when you all work from home. Like you just don't hear things. You don't overhear things. You don't, you're not within the group. You don't get this information sharing for free anymore. If you're a hybrid company uh, or fully remote, even actually choosing one or the other is probably it's easier to be remote than it is to be hybrid. And I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, they're probably learning that more and more uh, recently as they go hybrid because it feels like the simple answer. It's like, well, we have an office, might as well be hybrid. Like, give people option, it'll be great. What they don't realize is they're creating like second class citizens uh, where the people in the office might be in the know, the people who aren't. Whether they are in the know or not doesn't matter because they feel disconnected. It's about perception, yeah. Yeah, so that's another interesting thing that we've seen over and over again. It's just like again going back to that human connection, that belonging, and and information share. You just find out about things a lot more easier when when they're recorded and when you can search it and you know find and stumble upon stuff. So yeah, anyway, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I like rewatch. I'm a fan of what you've done with it. I like the direction y'all took with it. I think it's been very wise leadership so far, and I'm looking forward to doing the future. So I appreciate you sharing that journey for you today and then uh, what you've done so far. So thank you for your time, Connor. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. That's it for this episode. Thank you for tuning in. Do me a favor. I want to hear from you. We want to hear from you. What did you think about Connor's story? What did you think about Rewatch's story as a product? Anything you want to share, we are listening. Let us know in the comments. Links are in the show notes. And while you're at it, do me a favor. If you love this show, share it with a friend. That's the best way to help us reach more people and share these awesome stories. 
And of course, big thanks to our friends and our partners at Fastly. Our pods are fast to download globally because Fastly is fast globally. Check them out at Fastly.com. And also to Breakmaster Cylinder, our beats are banging because BMC makes banging beats and they are so fresh. And of course, last but not least, thank you to you for listening to the show all the way to the very end. I really appreciate everyone around the world who tunes into the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't yet, subscribe at founderstalk.fm. That's it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you again soon.